Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Today, I'm bringing you a very special conversation. I'm joined by my friend, Jamie Brown Hantman, who's written a terrific book called Heels in the Arena. Jamie and I recorded this conversation before a live audience at an event hosted by our mutual friend, Lee Dunn. I think you'll feel from the energy in the room the power of female connection and the importance of our female relationships. It's a great conversation. Jamie gives terrific advice, including how to survive the holidays with your relatives who may have a different political set of ideologies than your own. It's terrific, and Jamie is always humble and always entertaining. I think you'll really enjoy it. Our conversation opens with an introduction by Lee Dunn. As you embark on the start of the holiday season, I wish you all the best and safe travels wherever you're headed. Jamie, Laura, and I are so proud to have all of y'all here tonight to celebrate Thanksgiving week with us. I hope that you have a friend that I have, like Jamie and like Laura. Both of them, Jamie gives me career advice and also turned me on to my dermatologist. <laughs> Most importantly, right? Most importantly. Um, and she'll turn you on to a dermatologist, too, if you need a recommendation. And, you know, when I was saying, what's the purpose to my career? What am I doing? Laura took me to lunch and set me on this path straight and gave me some really concrete ideas about what to do and what I could do in my current role to make me feel, have more excitement and more creativity. So I hope each of you have someone like that in your life. If you don't, turn to the right or turn to the left and introduce yourself to the person next to you and hope that they become that person or introduce yourself to these two women because they can definitely help you as well. They're the most creative, dynamic women I know and they're both very good friends to me. So. Welcome and thank you to your first live podcast. Oh, fourth live podcast. So your, <laughs> your fourth live podcast. Getting better every time. <laughs> every time is more exciting. Um, and thank you guys all for coming. So enjoy. I'll turn it over to you. Lee, thank you very much. Welcome, everybody. It is such a pleasure to be here with all of you. It is the mark of true friendship for someone to come and celebrate their birthday with their dear friends. (laughs) A big, big happy birthday to Lee. Lee was there at the inception of this idea for She Said, She Said. She had great ideas. She continues to be a great friend to me and has provided lots of input and perspective, which you all, those of you who know Lee know, is so incredibly valuable. And that notion of collaboration and women's friendship, which is so evident in this room tonight, is one of the reasons why I felt strongly about starting this She Said, She Said podcast. She Said, She Said, for those of you who have not had an opportunity to listen, is about learning from each other. It's about sharing our experiences. It's about the experience of being a woman and the way in which we interact with the world oftentimes is a very similar thing. It's also about paying it forward. And every woman who comes on the podcast talks about what she's learned, how she got where she is, what she struggled with, 
These women all talk very, very authentically, but it is about paying it forward. And that's why it was, it's so perfect tonight to welcome Jamie Brown Hantman to She Said, She Said. Jamie, as you all know, has written a terrific book called Heels in the Arena. We are uh, recording this conversation, as Lee said, live tonight to air, hopefully tomorrow, God willing. <laughs> we can do a quick edit job and put it up on the podcast because she offers great advice on working across the aisle. Um, Jamie has had an incredible career starting off on Capitol Hill, at the Justice Department, and in the White House. And the title of the book is, I think, very instructive. It's not just heels in the arena, but heels in the arena living purple in a red and blue town. Jamie's book is a memoir, but it's not the kind of memoir that we're accustomed to in Washington. It's not a, a tell-all, salacious, scrub your image, <laughs> settle scores kind of book. You name a few names, but it's Most of them really, retired. <laughs> most of them are retired. Not all of them, but most of them. But it's not the kind of book that we are accustomed to. It is a book about paying it forward. And it's a book about working across the aisle, something that Jamie knows quite a bit about. She is a Republican. She is married to a Democrat. So she has been living a purple existence for many years. With that, Jamie Brown Hantman, my friend, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. I want to thank you. I want to thank Lee and wish her happy birthday. And um, there's so many faces from every stage of my life in this room. I feel um, I, I'm so happy to be here and I feel loved and, and uh, just thrilled that in this week that we are focusing on gratitude that, um, that I can be so grateful to be supported by so many friends over the years. It's really terrific. Jamie, let's jump right in. What inspired you to write this book? Most people say they have a book in them, and I'm one of those folks who always thought I wanted to write a book. A while ago, I started keeping little notes about uh, funny things that had happened as a woman in politics. It was more of a legally blonde sort of, this is all crazy, and maybe it would make a funny little you know, tiny book someday. Um, it became a little more serious for me uh, a few years ago, and then uh, we lived in New York, and as Laura can attest, um, my husband and I are huge Hamilton fans, and we were living just down 7th Avenue from the theater, and we, let's just say that we were on StubHub trying to get last minute tickets a lot, and succeeded, <laughs> and we are a bit of what you would call deadheads for Hamilton. Can, can, we, can we just pause the conversation for just one second? Okay, just a show of hands in the audience, how many people have seen the musical Hamilton? Okay, how many people have seen it more than once? How many people have seen it more than four times? How many people have seen it more than 10 times? Oh, I'm supposed to be curious. How many people have seen it 17 times or more? <laughs> I'm pretty sure there must be some kind of a prize. Either that or therapy, <laughs> I don't know. So it yeah. resonated with it, you. It did. I, yeah, I mean, one of the central themes is that you're supposed to speak uh, whatever it is that is on your mind. You know, it's not Burr, you know, talk less, smile more. It's, it's Hamilton and, and the impact that he had as a result of speaking what he felt was his responsibility. And I, I was energized by that. And um, I decided that not only did I want to tell the fun stories, stories that we all have here because of the, the careers that we have, 
but I wanted to frame it in a way where I could provide advice to the next generation of women who are coming along. Um, public service is the, one of the most noble professions. It is so important. Uh, we all know that. That's why we're here. Uh, I want to provide advice to younger women in particular um, so that they can have a bit of a roadmap to do it well and also to do it for the right reasons. So I do sort of talk about both of those things uh, in the course of telling some stories that um, hopefully are a little bit funny and entertaining. Yeah. One of the big takeaways in the book is working with your adversaries and also creating that collaboration. Right. You have a lot of experience at yes. home. <laughs> yes. In that regard, talk about why that was an important component and an important theme in the book. And so, you know, it wasn't like I sought out a Democrat to fall in love with and date and get married. <laughs> just you can't pick that. You are with the person you're meant to be with. And it wasn't just that, you know, he was a D and I was an R and we would do our jobs and, you know, that was fine. We were working in direct opposition to each other on a daily basis. When I was at DOJ, he was Dianne Feinstein's uh, chief counsel. We met in a meeting about assault weapons, and the, the uh, ban was expiring. So, you know, super romantic setting to meet your husband. Um, and then when I went to the White House, he, uh, he was Chuck Schumer's chief of staff. My role at the White House was uh, liaison to the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I was the person who was there when the Roberts and Alito uh, nominations were going through. And David was Chuck Schumer's chief of staff, and guess who was leading the charge against our nominees? So it was pretty pitched. Um, but it, it ended up being, I would say it was a great thing for our relationship, and it was actually a great thing for me and my professional work. I'll start with the first thing. We, all, we know that DC is a company town, and it's really easy to go home and just, how was your day? It was great. You cannot believe that a-hole you know, at the committee, and I can't believe they did this, this is ridiculous, you know, and you know, most of the time the person that you're having wine with is like, I know, they stink. <laughs> but I couldn't do that because he was the person who was driving me crazy. <laughs> Um, so as a result, you have to talk about other things. And so we would talk about books. We would talk about, you know, we would binge watch, you know, just, it was, I think it gave us, um, a more sort of rounded, round and complete relationship, more well-rounded. Um, so I think it was good for that reason. And in terms of professionally, I actually feel like it helped me, um, and my thinking because you, you can't be lazy in your arguments that you make and you're thinking about why you believe what you believe and how you advocate when somebody's pushing back at you. And my husband's really, really smart. I love that about him. Um, and he would push back when we would decide to talk about issues every once in a while. And it sharpened my thinking, for one. It made, you know, I would cast away things that I was like, oh, you know what, that's probably right. That's probably not a great line to take on the hill next time I'm there. Um, and it just made me uh, a better thinker about the things that I believed. And it also gave me a respectful uh, appreciation for the other point of view. And I think the important thing is that we both realized that we loved our country and we just had some slightly different ideas about the best way to go about solving its problems. And, and that is something that I'm hoping people now can read. And you know, in, in this day and age that we're in, I think we could use a little bit more of that approach to people that are not our enemies, they're our opponents. Yeah, I mean, it is, we are living in such hyper-partisan times and it's not just for people who are working on Capitol Hill or in government, but 
even going into the holidays, which we're about to, to embark upon, <laughs> sometimes within our families it can be hard to navigate the tricky political waters, including within certain parties, right? Right. right. Um, so, what's your advice as we, you know, embark on the holidays for, you know, not destroying every right. <laughs> every meal that you sit down to have yes. with your family or others who disagree with you? And, and I will. I won't say it's foolproof advice, but it hopefully it will help. I think the first sort of step or threshold is: Do we really need to talk about this? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the first question is what matters more, like beating my uncle, you know, who's, I won't pick sides of the aisle, but like, is that the more important thing or is it realizing this is your family and they are going to be around your, your whole life, right? And you love them, presumably, or you should. Um, what really matters at the end? Uh, is it an administration, a two-year or four-year time period and, and what's going on there? Or is it your life and your family and the things that are going to matter at the end of the day? I mean, obviously, like, if you have a Nazi in your family, you, you know, maybe that's something that you should be fairly direct about. But putting that aside, I think everybody in this room is dealing more with, you know, sort of differences of opinion and very strongly held beliefs. So I think first think, you know, is this really worth it? Can we take a day off from it? Somebody, you may decide that you want to take a day off and you know your cousin with an AOC tattoo on her ankle may decide, no, we're going to talk about this. <laughs> I would say if you're in the conversation, one, you know, try and stay dispassionate. Keep the emotion away from it if you can. Focus on facts uh, and ideas as opposed to, I think you're crazy for believing that or naive. Don't sort of make it personally. Uh, focus on ideas and facts. Uh, and another sort of technique that might work is role play a little bit, pretend you're a journalist, and ask questions. Learn more about why they think the way they do, as opposed to being sort of emotionally invested and needing to change their mind about it. Try and learn something. It'll help you get through it. They will feel heard. Um, and that may be the way to you know, get to your apple pie without indigestion. <laughs> I think that's very good, very good advice. You go play football together. <laughs> exactly. Let's get into a bit more about the book. I was really interested because I spend a lot of time focusing on women's self-awareness and personal leadership development and all these good topics. And when I opened up Jamie's book and read the first page, she talks about imposter syndrome, which we talk about a lot on this podcast. Talk about what you, the experience that you had and why this was significant enough to bring it up on the first page. Yeah, so the book opens with um, being on Air Force One with President Bush, and uh, I was in legislative affairs, and if you're in legislative affairs, a big part of your job is being with the president when he's with members of Congress, because you do not want them to have conversations without you, because you never know what's said and promised. So that was one of the nice perks, is you got to fly on Air Force One. And uh, our inspector, who was chairman of Senate Judiciary Committee, was on the plane traveling with us, and so that was, okay, that's Jamie. You know, we've got the Alito nomination happening right now. And uh, I sort of set that scene. I, I don't know if you want me to tell the story about yeah. why, but you know, one of the first things that I say in the very first paragraph is like, why, how am I here? I keep waiting for somebody to kind of walk over and tap me on the shoulder and say, there is a mistake. You need to get out of here right now. Um, Does this resonate with anybody in the audience? <laughs> anybody had this? <laughs> yeah. The nice thing was when I got to the White House and you start getting to know your colleagues, as it turns out, there are other people who feel that way, men and women. 
And you know, one of our deputies in legislative affairs would talk about the same thing, like, I can't believe I'm here, I got C's, you know, I wasn't interested <laughs> in politics. Um, and that helped. Um, and I actually found that the people who had a little bit of humility about it tended to be really good at their jobs. And the people who, of course, I'm here, I'm the greatest thing in the world, aren't even necessarily like, you know, the best contributors all the time. So I, I think that helped help me get through. So the story that opens the book, um, we're sitting there and Senator, it was the president, Carl Rove, uh, Senator Specter, and myself in the president's office. And the senator excused himself to use the restroom. So I'm, I'm just sitting there with the president and Carl, trying to sort of make myself unobtrusive. And the two of them are chatting. There had been some event at the White House the previous night, some sort of social arts event. And there was a woman that they both knew who'd been there. And, that, and the president said, so-and-so has lost so much weight. I mean, she looks incredible. Like, oh, just fantastic. It sounded like one of those biggest losers things. Like, I don't know who this person is, <laughs> but it just sounded amazing, you know. And he was like, oh, that's great. And I'm really happy for her. And then the president gets a little quiet, nods his head. It's like, but you know, she looks, she looks a lot older now. And without thinking, blurt out, comes out of my mouth comes, well, you know what they say, at a certain point, a woman has to choose between her face and her ass. <laughs> and then, yes, it hit me. What did I just say? I said it out loud. <laughs> the words are hanging over us. <laughs> and the president is like, not, you know, you can see him. It's like, that's absolutely right. <laughs> Crisis averted. So that's the tone of the book. It's like, me putting my foot in my mouth and doing some crazy things. <laughs> you, one uh, of my favorite chapters is chapter three, where you provide your 10 Hill Commandments, a bit of a takeoff on a particular musical that we've talked about. <laughs> um, <laughs> give, us a, give us a sense of maybe your top two or three. Um, which ones really were, are important from your perspective in terms of sharing with others? Um, so one of them, and I think everybody in this room will get this, um, the, the actual headline is, your jokes aren't that funny. <laughs> and it's just sort of talking about you know, the way this town works. And if you're a staffer for a member, you're going to get sort of that reflected glory of who you work for. And lobbyists return your phone calls pretty fast. And when you crack a joke, it doesn't matter how funny it is. They're going to laugh pretty hard. Um, and if you are not cognizant of that, you know, you start to believe your own press, as they say, and that is not a good thing. Um, it's because, as you know, we all leave those jobs at some point. And if your sense of yourself is tied up in this notion um, that is built up by other people, it's a, it's a really hard transition. Um, and so that's one of, the, one of the commandments in there. The story that I told, I changed the name of the person because um, you'll know why I changed the name of the person. So when I say a name, you're like, that's not their name. So, Some um, of you will know this person. Yes. <laughs> um, when I was working for Senator Mack, there was a movie premiere for, remember Enemy of the State, the movie with Will Smith and Gene Hackman and John Boyd. And, uh, so it premiered here in D.C. It was up at the Uptown. 
Entertainment Tonight was there, the little like lights in the sky, red carpet, it was really cool. And as you know, companies like Disney do the smart thing and they invite staff that they work with to these things. And so I was invited to go. They were ushering all of us like normal people through the lobby, you know, obviously just the stars and the sort of beautiful people and beautiful for DC people were sort of <laughs> lingering in the lobby, all chatting with each other. I'm sort of obeying what I'm supposed to do and making my way through the lobby. And um, I was friendly with Jack Valeni because my, my friend Cindy was the lobbyist for MPAA at the time. And Jack saw me. Jack was he, the CEO of yes. running MPAA. He, was, he worked for LBJ, and then he, was, he ran the MPAA for years and years and years. And he is was, rest in peace, just an amazing person. Southern gentleman and just great dresser. He was just a character. So he saw me and just when he looks at you and he's got his attention on you, you feel like you're in the center of the world. Jamie, come stand with me. So of course I go over and you know Jack sort of plucked me out so I could hang out with him. And he's introducing me to, to Joe Roth, who ran the Disney studio, John Voight. Linda Carter, you know, the OG Wonder Woman. It was amazing. I'm like, this, this will never happen again. So we're doing all this, and this staffer, who I will call Michael Scarn for all you Office fans, <laughs> um, he, he sees that I'm me, little old me, who's just like, you know, regular old staffer for a senator, is standing with Jack. So of course, because of who he is, he decides he's going to come over too. So he comes on over. And then Gene Hackman comes over to our group and says hi to Jack. And then Jack introduces me to Gene Hackman and, you know, nice to meet you, Mr. Hackman. And then um, the staffer just puts his hand out, says, Mr. Hackman, I'm Michael Scarn. I'm staff director for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And Gene Hackman looked at him like he looked at Kevin Costner in No Way Out. It was just like, <laughs> I do not care. And just got out of there as quickly as he could. And that was sort of a vivid illustration for me of like, oh, do not believe your own press. Just keep in mind where we are in the world and, and don't get a little hung up on it. Yeah. Having that level of humility and perspective is incredibly important. Yeah. You also talk about the importance of knowing who your friends are, mm -hmm. and the women, and, and a particularly special man of, <laughs> of mine who's here <laughs> tonight. <laughs> the only man, he wins a prize <laughs> at my house. My husband, Joel Kaplan, <laughs> is here tonight. Um, but all of these folks who have come out tonight a few days before Thanksgiving to celebrate the launch of your book and your tremendous success, talk about the advice that you provide in the book about knowing who your friends are. Because in a place like Washington, where sometimes you will find yourself in the company of various people, those people may not be your real friends. So how do you know? What's your advice? Well, I mean, unfortunately, sometimes you don't realize it till after the fact. You know, you think there's someone who's just, you know, you guys are thick as thieves. And then when you're, you know, working downtown, you're like, huh, I never hear from them. Um, you, you have to use your intuition. Um, so you, you realize it over time, and I think one of the important things to do is to always you know, keep true with your friends that you had before you come here. Don't lose that. You, know, you get busy, um, you should make new friends, and you will make lifelong friends um, you know, through the process of working with people, and they will be there for you when you need them and you're not in those important jobs anymore. But don't forget the people that you were friends with um, before you came here. Um, so it's, and you should enjoy it. I, I don't say those things to make it seem 
so cynical that it spoils it. You know, it's very fun to be here and interact with a lot of people, but in the book, like I said, my tone is very sort of irreverent. It, it's sort of like, okay, if you know you're gonna like date this guy who really never wants to settle down, but you're having a nice time with him, that's fine. You know it going in, just don't you know set yourself up for thinking that this is lifelong, so. Yeah. So the book is filled with a number of career pivots, as oftentimes Washington careers are. It is such a common question that I often get, I'm sure you do too, from young women who say, when should I pivot? How long should I be in this role? And I think oftentimes millennial women get a bad rap. And we've talked about this. Jamie came and spoke to a class that I teach at American University, and we had this very conversation about the fact that I remember being very impatient in that my first big girl job in Washington and how I couldn't wait to have you know, something that was a bit shinier. Jamie, talk about advice that you give to young women about those early career pivots and then maybe later on in your career when uh, the, the challenge of whether to pivot can become a bit trickier or just there's more components to it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, and you're right that there, it's different decisions um, and different things that factor in. I think when you're young, uh, you want to make sure that you're being challenged um, on the Hill. You know, I, I'd been on the Hill three years and you know you start seeing the same thing over and over again. I mean, back in the mid-90s when I was doing this, it was, you know, things like the flag-burning amendment, you know, and you'd, get, you'd do his vote, and you put that in the filing cabinet, um, and then, you know, the next Congress, a year and a half later, it's like, oh, they announced it's flag-burning amendment week again, so, you know, dust it off. Okay, here's your statement. And, you know, it, it can get a little repetitive. And that was, I started to feel like I needed a new challenge. And sometimes you can, you know, take new issues on, and that's the way to learn and to grow, or you can move up in an office. Um, I try, I write about it in the book. I put my name in there for uh, legislative director because that opened up. I didn't get it. At the time, I was unbelievably devastated. This is just the end, you know, what's gonna happen, this career that I thought would go this way and I'm already stuck. I left, I found a nice job at a lo uh, lobbying shop downtown and a few months after uh, I left, a friend of mine here in the audience, Carrie and I, I think we were out having some drinks and little alert comes on our Blackberry that Senator Mack was uh, retiring. He was not gonna run again and um, it hit me like, I mean, obviously I was sad about that because he was an amazing public servant, but it had actually worked well for me in terms of my career and the job that I was able to get because some of those jobs you don't get if you don't have a boss on the Hill anymore. And so I, that it was sort of a really important lesson for me about, you know, I think I know what is the best thing for me to do, but I actually didn't and it worked out pretty well. Um, later on in career, you know, in your career path, yeah, there's more factors in play. And I'm at a point, I mean, I talk about it. Um, I'm not going full blast, uh, pedaled in the metal with my career at this point. I, I hung out a shingle and I'm doing consulting and I have a nine-year-old. And that's why the work is something that I'm doing, both because I need to use my brain and I enjoy this and I wanna be a role model to her. I mean, part of it to me is really important for her to see um, that, that she can do anything, but it's not my sole identity uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Now it's a part of what I'm doing. And so I think, you know, when I was young, I would ask those questions, you know, can women have it all? 
And you know, I think what you see a lot is you can have it all, but not all at the same time. Like there are stages in life and each one of them is to be embraced completely. Yeah, talk about, you give great advice in the book about some sort of seemingly innocent practices that women can engage in that can undermine their credibility with their audience, whoever yes. that may be. Talk a little bit about yeah. that. And one in particular, I think, really resonated okay. with the class. And, and that actually, going back to the Ten Hill Commandments chapter, one of them was be confident. Um, when I first got there, the, uh, my boss was a woman, the legislative director in the office, and I noticed immediately that she delivered any information to the senator with complete confidence. And even if I'd just been in her office with her and we weren't quite sure what was happening, she would go out there and when he asked the question, she told it to him as if it was 150% accurate. And so I saw how important that was. And especially in these, you know, with these members, they're busy, they need to know that you got it covered. And I think that's something that women in particular, you know, we tend to want to be very accurate and thorough. And so we maybe put a little edge, like I think this is what's happening. We're sort of hedging our bets a little bit. Um, we need to just put it out there and own it. And I think at the end of the day, even if you're wrong two times out of 100, that's better than being not quite confident in delivering that accurate information, you know, the, the other 98 times. Um, so that's something that I talked about. A couple other little pieces of advice one, I try not to use the word just in emails. I think it minimizes what we're saying. Just put it out there. It's not, you know, I'm just trying to touch base on this. We want to make sure you have it. Like, no, here, this is for you. Um, a lot of nodding heads <laughs> in the audience. <laughs> and something else that I have started to notice, and this isn't a black and white rule. Uh, it varies depending on situation. But I think that women need to be more cognizant of the role of being a note taker. And it comes into play more as you get older, when you're a junior in your career, and if you're in that ring, you know, in the back of the conference room with all the other junior staff, all of you probably should be taking notes. That's sort of your role in the situation. But as you get older, or if you're just meeting with your peers at that age, or as you get older and you're in more senior roles, take a look around, and if the men who are at your level are not taking the notes, don't, don't take notes, because it sort of puts you in a stenographer role as opposed to a role of somebody who is a strategic thinker and taking part in the conversation. Um, and counter to what I just said, obviously we see in you know, impeachment hearings that note taking can be really important. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when, um, you know when, I was, when I was with John Roberts and Fred Thompson and we were meeting with you know, Russ Feingold, yes, I was the note taker and that you know, there is a place for it. But in those other situations where you're sort of in a, in a group of peers, just t take note and, and don't um, sell yourself short. Yeah, you should expand on that too, just so people know, because I don't think you've talked about it. You were the Sherpa, essentially, legislative person who was shepherding now Chief Justice John Roberts around during his confirmation meetings and mm -hmm. leading up to the hearing. Right, and, and then did the same for Harriet Myers for a month and then for Justice Alito. It was an amazing team, and Christy over here was uh, at OLP at DOJ and doing a lot of the substantive work, so we were in the bunker together. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so my role in this amazing team 
was to be our lead liaison with the Senate. So that involved figuring out the courtesy visits, which there's actually a lot involved to sort of the rhythm of that and how many Ds and Rs you do in a day. You want to build a narrative, uh, getting them ready for it, debriefing the team afterwards, and then you know once the hearings are over, making sure that you have the votes. So it was, it was really fun. Yeah. I want to dig in a little deeper on confidence, which you touched on just a second ago. And not just how you keep your confidence high, but something that I think may resonate even more with this particular audience, and that is how your confidence maybe evolves over time and how you might have been more inclined in more junior roles to take risks, but when the stakes get higher, it can be harder. There are more right. things to consider. Talk about how confidence for you has evolved. Uh, you know, it ebbs and flows. I was really confident when I was a kid and then partway through college, all of a sudden, you know, I just got, it, it sort of went away a little bit. And when I went to law school, I was incredibly intimidated. You know, I'd gone to little Christian schools and a little Baptist college for the most part. And then I was at Georgetown and all your classmates have gone to Ivy League and they're just super, you know, they just seemed so much more well-versed and, and um, it was really intimidating. And so it kind of went away a little bit. Um, once I got to the Hill, I think that doing one thing sort of increases your confidence to do the next thing. And, you know, I have one story in that chapter about uh, when Senator Mack had to be in Florida for a funeral and there was, you know, sort of shut down negotiations, negotiations happening. And it was my issue. It was an immigration issue. And we get a phone call from Speaker Gingrich's office that he wants Connie over there to talk. And I said, well, Connie's not here and he'll be back tomorrow and really would like to do it then. 30 seconds later, no, the speaker would like you to come now and talk about this issue. So, you know, I'm in my mid-20s and I am going over to the speaker's suite to sit down with Newt Gingrich at the head of the table, Lamar Smith, who was representing the House position here, and me sitting here in like the room full of staff everywhere. And I mean, my heart was beating out of my chest. And obviously you're not going to win in that negotiation, but it was just, okay, my goal is to live to fight another day. Just don't give up his position and we made it through. It was not pleasant. And then he came back and the benefit was that we'd heard all of Lamar Smith's best arguments and Connie came back, loaded for bear, and we actually got the, it was actually the last major immigration provision that's been signed into law. That experience is actually something that I still will refer back to if I'm intimidated or nervous about something. I just think, okay, well, I sat across the table from Newt Gingrich um, on behalf of my boss, so I think that this will be fine. Later on in my career, you know, there were times that I didn't necessarily see myself as ready for things that other people saw me as ready for, and I'm grateful that people had confidence in me, and I think that's part of, you know, as we talk about sort of our network of friends and people who support us, it's so critical sometimes we don't believe that about ourselves. And when at DOJ, that happened to me where I was able to um, take on roles that I wouldn't have volunteered for and didn't think I was ready for. Um, you just take it a day at a time. You take your little broadcast news crying breaks when you need them. And next thing you know, you've, you, uh, you've done it. Yeah. I want you to talk a bit about the process that went into writing the book. You talked about what inspired the book. But let's talk about when did you actually decide, I'm going to write a book? And had you been contemplating this for a while? Was it something that you took notes on? Like, what was the process? And then how long did it take? Yes. So it, was, it took forever and then not much time at all. So 
uh, started in Evernote in 2012 with all the crazy little silly ideas, and that just sat there, and I would add to it when I would think of things. And then, you know, once we were in New York, Hamilton really spurred me on. And then the other thing that happened is, um, you know, my mom passed away really suddenly, and I learned some things. If we have time, we can go into that later. That just really changed my whole sort of framing about how I view what I do and what how we sort of add value to the world. And I just said, you know, I need to get serious about this and do it. And so I just, you know, they say you eat the elephant. You just do a little bit at a time. I, I'm not one of these people who can sit and write for eight hours because my creativity is going to go like that. So if you do, you know, 500 words a day, 1,000 words a day, you're going to have a book um, in a few months. Um, it took longer than that for me because I didn't do it every day. But I also hired an editor. And having that deadline where I knew I owed her pages was a um, really helped spur it on. So probably a good year and a half of writing with the last five or six months being the most productive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want you to talk, if you're comfortable, talk about your mom yeah. and talk about that experience yeah. because that did play a big role in your ultimate decision to to pull yeah. the together. So my mom wasn't just my mom. She was an educator. And she was one of those teachers that all of her students to a person would say was their best teacher and just impacted thousands of lives. Um, so I talk about her, you know, in the early chapters and being in her class. She was my government teacher. And so, you know, when getting the job at the White House, that was the first call when I, when I walked out of the gates after I'd gotten the offer to let her know. And, you know, we celebrated together. And she wasn't just celebrating her daughter. She was celebrating one of her students, you know, getting into one of these positions. And our, my whole life, the whole idea had been my parents wanted my sister and me to do better than they had done. You know, middle class family. Um, but it was, it was always about sort of pushing us to do our best, and you guys will go even further than we have. And it's sort of, that was what I thought had happened, and I think that's what they thought had happened, too. It was teacher, small business owner, and then, you know, I was working at the White House. My sister went to West Point, and that was sort of the narrative. Then in 2015, she had ovarian cancer, and it was completely undiagnosed, and so goes into a hospital, and eight days later, she's gone without ever knowing what was wrong with her. And it was like a car crash. Um, she was only 65. Those days after on Facebook, it's, it can be an amazing sort of forum for, for people to share with each other. And you know, the morning after, I wake up and had put this news that was completely unexpected to anybody out there. And it was just, I mean, it was just filled with just dozens and dozens of amazing um, testaments to the impact that she had had on so many people's lives. And it, within those first few days, my whole framing of what had happened with her life and with my life completely flipped on its head. And I realized that it will take me forever to bring the value into the world that my mom did as a teacher and with what she did. And it, it was just, it was her last gift to me. I'll read three. Um, it's impossible to place value on a life well lived, a life dedicated to mentoring, serving, and pouring into others. <clears throat> Jane, I hope you now realize the impact you've had on us. We can't help but read these posts and hope we spend our lives even half as well as you did. The next one. I can honestly say I don't know where I'd be today if not for Jane Brown. At a time my family was falling apart as a young teenager, Mrs. Brown made school my family. And the last one. 
I fashion myself to teach my children like you taught me. I want to especially thank you for showing me the love you had for African Americans. You were the only teacher that showed any interest in black history. That was important to me. Thank you. She was special. I made it through. <laughs> beautiful. That's beautiful. Really beautiful. You dedicate the book to your precious daughter, Emma. Yes. What do you hope Emma will take away from this book? I want her to know she can do anything that she wants to do. Um, she's an amazing kid. She's the best handman in our house. <laughs> my, my husband and I, you can take us or leave us. Everybody loves her. I say that kindness is a recessive gene, apparently. Um, she's, she, we are so blessed with her. And I don't want to push her into any one thing. I actually am trying, as she gets older, to avoid doing that whole, like, oh, you're so much like me in this way, or like your dad, because I don't want to limit her into thinking that that's who she is. I want her to think that she can be, and know that she can be anything. So that's, that's it. Yeah. OK, Jamie, we have one final question that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. We ask for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra, you've already given us great advice, but if you had to distill it down to one thing that's maybe your North Star, maybe advice you wish you had had at 25, what would yours be? Love God, love others, the end. Beautiful, really beautiful. Jamie Brown-Hantman, thank you thank so you. much for being here. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. Lee Dunn, thank you so much yeah. for hosting us. Where are you? <laughs> we are very, very grateful. For those of you who have not had a chance to check out the podcast, it's She Said, She Said Podcast. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast, including Google Play. <laughs> and our website, www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. You will always find a broad array of really interesting, inspiring women. Our goal is to really showcase broad, diverse voices who are leading and having a positive impact in unique and special ways and who are really dedicated to sharing what they've learned, like Jamie, and paying it forward for the rest of us. So with that, I urge you to subscribe. Make sure you get Jamie to sign your book. And thank you all so much for being here. Have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. Jamie, so great. Thank you. Enjoyed thank it. you so much. It's really great. Oh.